welcome to Blazing History, where we are blazing through history one week at a time. Facebook.com slash Blazing Shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N Shows. Same with Twitter. And go check out my brand new website, BlazingShows.com. And uh, coming up on Saturday, February 20th, I've been really good at making sure the show's air via the Pacifica network, not so much turning them into podcasts, but on on Saturday, February 20th, we're going to drop all the history shows, and on Friday the 19th will be my Blazing Access show drop. Uh, I will be more diligent in making sure that the shows also are podcasts, and I will release them uh, every week to make sure this all happens. Anyhow, I'm going to blaze through history here from February 12th to the 18th. Bill Russell, uh, one of the greatest NBA centers of all time. He played during the 60s, and uh, he turned 87 years old on February 12th. He had a stellar performance in the NBA Finals in 1962 against the L.A. Lakers. His Boston Celtics hosted the Lakers at the Boston Garden. And here are some of the highlights from a TV broadcast from 1962. West. Sam Jones bothering him, harrying him. Still he shoots. Rebound grabbed by Sanders. Kuzi, waiting for his man, bounce pass to Russell. Basket is good and he's Three-point play coming up. Wasn't that pretty as Russell came flying down the lane and Kuzi led him perfectly and makes it. 17 points now for Bill Russell. Kuzi in the lane. Russell, dunk. Bob Kuzi, Sam Jones, Tom Sanders, Bill Russell, Felix Arnold. And a foul. Russell has 19 points. He's got it. Give him 20, and the Celtics a one-point lead, 76-75. Sam from behind the backboard. A beauty. Behind the backboard, 78-77. Celtics lead by one. Russell almost lost. Foul is on Ray Felix. Big Bill. Makes it 21 for him and a two-point bonus for the Celtics, 79-77. Bill Russell went on to have 30 points and 40 rebounds. I mean, that's unheard of. Wow. Uh, What a performance by Bill Russell, one of the best NBA players of all time. And we move on to February 13th, five years ago today, Antonin Scalia, the late conservative Supreme Court justice, died, was right near the end of President Barack Obama's second term, which created turmoil. We have this tribute of the late Antonin Scalia from CBS Sunday Morning. I could be charming and combative at the same time. What's what's contradictory between the two? I love to argue. It may well be that I'm something of a shin kicker. Antonin Scalia has been described as blunt, witty, scathing, sarcastic, and even by his adversaries, brilliant. He will no doubt be remembered as one of the most consequential judges and thinkers to serve on the Supreme Court. 
He believed in what he called originalism, that the U.S. Constitution should be interpreted exactly as the Founding Fathers understood it. This is what he told Leslie Stahl in a 60 Minutes interview. I'm not saying no progress. I'm saying we should progress democratically. You, you think there ought to be a, a right to abortion? No problem. The Constitution says nothing about it. Create it the way most rights are created in a democratic society. Pass a law. In three decades on the Supreme Court, Scalia shaped conservatism. The 2008 ruling stating for the first time that the Second Amendment gave Americans the right to own a gun for self-defense, one of his many majority opinions. His dissents were often withering. The opinion legalizing gay marriage, he said, is as pretentious as its content is egotistic. Whenever anyone questioned the court's decision in Bush versus Gore, the case that determined the outcome of the 2000 presidential election, he replied, We did the right thing, so, so there. <laughs> Born in Trenton, New Jersey, Antonin Scalia grew up in New York City, in Queens, the only child of an immigrant from Sicily. He met his wife, Maureen, while he was at Harvard Law School. Devoted Catholics, they have nine children. President Ronald Reagan appointed him to the Supreme Court in 1986. As prickly as he could be, Scalia was well-liked among his colleagues. I attack ideas. I don't attack people. And some very good people have some very bad ideas. His best friends on the court? Liberal justices Elena Kagan and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's Ginsburg and Scalia together on an elephant. As annoyed as you might be about his zinging dissent, he is so utterly charming, so amusing, so sometimes outrageous. I mean, you can't help but saying, I'm glad that he's my friend or he's my colleague. He always insisted that his judicial philosophy was dictated by the Constitution only, but his death instantly turned the political arena bloody. I plan to fulfill my constitutional responsibilities to nominate a successor. Another Obama Supreme Court appointment could tip the 5-4 majority from conservative to liberal. Justice the Republicans' Scalia position? Absolutely clear at last night's GOP debate in South Carolina. I, I think that we ought to let the next president of the United States decide. The Senate needs to stand strong and say, we're not going to give up the U.S. Supreme Court for a generation by allowing Barack Obama to make one more liberal appointee. Delay, delay, delay. Antonin Scalia loved a good fight. The battle over who names his successor on the Supreme Court will be huge. Indeed it was, as President Obama was unable to appoint a new justice and President Trump was able to appoint Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch. The Supreme Court now has a conservative majority. Now we move on to February 14th. Jack Benny, a TV and radio entertainer, was born on February 14th, 1894. But on this show, my guests on this show are, um, you know, I've been rehearsing so much I get a little bit confused. 
And, oh, hello, boys. <laughs> I, um, oh, yes, I have the uh, Park Avenue Hillbilly, Dorothy Shea, and Frank Remley, and Don Wilson. Those are my three guests here. And so first, I, uh, I'd like to introduce... Oh, before I do, I've got to tell you one joke, a story. As a rule, I don't tell jokes, you know, I just talk, you know. But this is a joke that I heard when I was playing at the Palladium Theater in London. It's about an actor who was standing in front of the Palladium in London, and a fellow walked over to him, and this actor was very blue and very dejected, and a friend of his walked over to him, and he said, I say, Derek... See, most of the actors in London are called Derek, you know. They, they have an occasional Basil or a Sidney or a Cecil, but Derek seems to be the popular name there. So one of the, this fellow walked over to this actor, and he said to him, Derek, what's the matter with you? You look so blue. He said, oh, it's nothing. He said, well, there must be something the matter with you. Now, what is it? So this actor said, he said, well, let me tell you what happened. He said, about three weeks ago, an uncle of mine died and left me 10,000 pounds. He says, two weeks ago, another uncle of mine died and left me 5,000 pounds. Now, last week... Stage manager. Last week... Say, uh, I wonder if you'd uh, draw those travelers and uh, bring down my scenery. Yeah. Thank you. Say, would you give this music to Mr. Merrick, please? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, a few weeks ago, I was on the Alan Young Show, and I sang a song. And the, the, re, the response was so wonderful that I'd like to do an encore for you tonight, if you will, Mr. Merrick. Thank you. said, last week, my uncle died and left me nothing. That's the end of the joke. <laughs> of course, the, uh, I mean, the joke, 
is naturally a lot better when I can go right through it. You see what I mean? <laughs> Uh, the late Jack Benny. That was a clip from, I believe it was one of his TV programs in the early 50s. Jack Benny died in December of 1974, 80 years old, from pancreatic cancer. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the fact that he tried to tell the joke and kept getting interrupted, that was really funny. I'm right, moving right along to February 15th, uh, 1978 was a historical day in the boxing world as up-and-coming boxer Leon Spinks beat Muhammad Ali. Here is round 15 from CBS Broadcast. We are back, and here it is, the 15th round, and it is so close. This could be the pivotal round. People here at ringside say Muhammad Ali has got to have a knockout or he's going to lose it to Young Spinks. Spinks feels it and he can taste the heavyweight championship. And if he doesn't make a mistake, he just may have a heavyweight championship. One of the most unbelievable nights in sport. The 24-year-old from St. Louis and Philadelphia with seven professional fights. A chance to take it away from Muhammad Ali, who has fought 57 times. Only 31 rounds until tonight. And here is battling Leon Spinks, going for the title. And if Spinks has the energy to keep this up for another round, he will have won it in many of, of ringsiders' opinion. Ali looks like he's conserving his energy, but he better not wait too long. This is the last gasp. Ali just nailed him with a right hand, a repeat right hand. Can he follow it up now? If Spinks lets him out of that corner, he's a fool. Now he's got him on the rope. Now comes Ali. Now comes Ali, the champion. Now comes Ali, the man who knows how to win in the end. He's got Spinks in trouble over here with that last fight, Doctor. Now Spinks comes on. Leon Spinks holding it home the 15th round. But Spinks is weary. He's falling back. Unbelievable, we're inside of a minute and a half to go. It has been a night to remember. Here comes Ali. Here comes Ali. The corner and told him he had to have the knockout. Oh, he's in trouble. Now Spinks is in trouble. Spinks has got to hold on for just over a minute. Everyone's on their feet now. You can see them coming up behind the press row. If Ali's got anything left in the last 30 second pick, he can knock him out. A minute now to go. But they're both tired. Ali can't figure this out. Oh, this so important now everything. for this final flurry, Doctor. This is where Muhammad Ali has always been able to reach down into the bag of tricks. And my heart is bleeding for Ali. He can put this kid away, and he does not have it at 35 to 36 to come get him. He does not have it to come get him. Spink stays. Solomon yelling at him. Stay out of trouble. Muhammad trying to come on. It's a countdown. Time in Las Vegas. Oh, that left. 20 seconds if they can both hold on we might have another champion Ali is exhausted what a great night two tremendous warriors let me remind you we're going to go to a station break then we're going to be back for a decision as we wind down one of the great nights in the history of the heavyweight division what a fight it's over we'll be back we're going to hold on as everyone runs into the ring they think over in Spink's corner that he's on 
they feel for sure that they have taken away the heavyweight championship. Put Joy over there. There is Leon. 24 years old. Dr. Pacheco, how did you wind up with it? I wound up 762 Spinks, Gill round up 951 Spinks, and I imagine the Greek wanted 843 Spinks. So all three round. of our experts at ringside, Jimmy the Greek, Gil Clancy, and Dr. Ferdy Pacheco, have given this fight to the challenger. There is the great champion's corner. Straighten him right up with that left coming underneath, the knee. Uppercut it beautifully. Sensational last round. A sensational last round with my heart is bleeding for a man who has been so great. Can't say enough, Doctor, about what Muhammad Ali has done for this division. Boxing. There is more action. You can't say what he's done for the world of sports. For his racing There's the ring announcer, Chuck Hall. We have a split decision. Judge Art Lurie scores 143, 142, Ali. Judge Lutabit scores. 145, 140, Sphinx. <laughs> Judge Harold Buck scores 144, 141, the new. There it is. Sphinx has won it. Leon Sphinx has won the heavyweight championship of the world. Incredible. Incredible. What a heart this young kid has got. Brett Musburger and company on the call from February 15th, 1978. Leon Spinks takes down one of the greats, Muhammad Ali. We stay in the world of sports on February 16th, 1959. Tennis great John McEnroe was born. A better player. That was the plan. I mean, it wasn't a plan to be a worse player. To what extent do you feel you maximized your potential? That's difficult to say. I'd say probably 90%. You know, I mean, I didn't reach my potential, but it's very difficult to reach your potential. I think I did better than most people. When I took time off, six months off or so, when, which doesn't seem like a crazy amount of time now, Roger Federer, um, that uh, I was coming back to be a better player. I didn't, you know, I wasn't, you know, parents thought, oh, he's going to quit, or some people thought, he's gonna, no. I was gonna come back and be a better player. That was the plan. I mean, it wasn't a plan to be a worse player. And I tried a whole set of things, whether it was you know, weightlifting, you know, yoga, training more off court, getting back to playing a little bit more, uh, changing, trying different racket, whatever it was, anything and everything. At the time, if you look at where I was at say the end of 1984, 1985, I'm, I, I did feel at that particular stage that I thought to myself that maybe it sounds egotistical but, and I guess it is when I was at that stage I thought no one's ever played you know better than I played you know when I'm at my best I feel like I'm the best that's played I brought the game up to a different level um, 
but why aren't I feeling better about it? So I felt like something was missing uh, in my life. It wasn't the tennis part. So because of that other part, probably ultimately my tennis was hurt. You wrote in your book, for anyone who's been on the top, once you've lost it, everything spirals out of control and it's difficult to find your way back. Explain that. Well, you know, some of this is you rely on instinct and some of it is luck and some of it is a lot of hard work. But at the same time, you work for many years to maintain that edge. And any athlete will tell you that you don't want to lose it once you get there because you've spent years, you know, with every part of the sport, the mental part, the preparation, the intensity, the playing, all that to come to a point where you've got an edge. And when you take time off, and if you come back and clearly something, look, look at Novak right now. You know, people are like, well, what's going to happen with Novak? No one knows. Right now, he's a shell of a person he was. Tiger Woods. You know, he was going to break Jack Nicklaus's record, no question about it. Well, five years have gone by, and, you know, you're like, he's a shell of himself. And maybe a lot of it's injuries or a combination, and now he has a chance again. And so you don't, and and Novak could have a chance again, absolutely. And I don't think I was ever counted out. My last Wimbledon, I got to the semis. Uh, I played Sampras in the semis of the Open when I was 31. I thought to myself, all right, I got, I got this. You know, he's 19. Now he was, turns out he's turned out to be a pretty good player. And Agassi in the final. Now I could have lost to him, I guess, too, because I lost to him at Wimbledon. But that seemed like it was going to happen. And it didn't. So it's, (laughs) I wish I knew the answer to these. The the end of your tennis career, per se, was also basically the end of your marriage. And you wrote, I felt as though the bottom had dropped out of the world. How would you describe the feeling? Not only was I losing a part of my identity, which was tennis, or so I thought. Turns out I'm still obviously a lot more involved than I thought I would be at the time. Um, what I basically thought I was stopping for in a way was so that allow my ex-wife to sort of have the opportunity to go out and do her thing and then take care of the kids, which I thought, hey, that's not a bad thing. They're young and that would be a good thing. So then to have sort of neither one of those in a way, like the end of the marriage and the career, that was, you know, that was a lot to handle. All right, John McEnroe talking about his book and his career. February 17th, 1992, Jeffrey Dahmer was sentenced to 15 life terms. We have this report from CBS News. Jeffrey Dahmer's murderous orgy is over. Throughout the trial that found him sane, grief-stricken families of the 15 men and boys Dahmer killed and mutilated held their peace. But today, before the sentencing, they had their day in court. Did you ever stop to think that this is someone's brother, nephew, uncle, cousin, grandson, or just someone's friend? I hope you can deal with what you've done. I'm trying hard to. You almost destroyed me, but I refuse to let you destroy me. I will carry on. You destroyed the baby of the family, and I hope you go to hell. Only the sister of Errol Lindsay was unable to contain her rage. See my mother have to go through this again. After a brief recess, Dahmer addressed the court for the first time. I didn't ever want freedom. Frankly, I wanted death for myself. This was a case to tell the world that I did what I did not for reasons of hate. I hated no one. 
I knew I was sick or evil or both. Now I believe I was sick. Though he accepted the blame for his barbaric crimes, cannibalizing, even crudely lobotomizing some of his victims, Dahmer nonetheless asked for forgiveness. I should have stayed with God. I tried and failed and created a holocaust. And if I could give my life right now to bring their loved ones back, I would do it. I am so very sorry. I deserve whatever I get because of what I have done. Jeffrey Dahmer, 1992, being sentenced to 15 life terms for the extremely sick crimes that he did. Final thing here, we have Norma McCorvey, who was the Roe in the Roe v. Wade abortion case. She died four years ago on February 18th, 2017. Here's a report, well, really more like a tribute of her life. Good evening and thank you for joining us. I'm Wyatt Goolsby in for Lauren Ashburn. The woman known as Jane Roe in the Roe versus Wade decision that legalized abortion has died. Norma McCorvey went from being an abortion advocate to a pro-life Catholic. Mark Irons brings us her story from the Supreme Court tonight. Mark. Wyatt, in 1973, the decision that legalized abortion took place here. It's not something that Norma McCorvey was proud of. In a statement, her family said, quote, though she was the Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade, she worked hard for the day when that decision would be reversed. In 1969, Norma McCorvey was 22 years old. Unmarried, unemployed, and pregnant with her third child, she began to hear about abortion. I really didn't even know what the word abortion meant. I, I had to go and ask uh, a friend, and she spelled it for me and, and told me to look it up in the dictionary. I, I still didn't understand it. Abortion was illegal in Texas, except to save a mother's life. In her book, I Am Roe, Norma says an adoption attorney put her in touch with Sarah Weddington, a Texas lawyer who was seeking to represent a woman to challenge the state's abortion law. The two met over lunch. She got taken advantage of uh, over a, a pizza lunch, basically, to sign some papers, and, um, and she didn't think anything of it. I mean, she went on to then have the baby. Sarah Weddington couldn't help her in that short of time and uh, place the baby for adoption. So she was definitely taken advantage of. Janet Morana, executive director of Priest for Life, became friends with Norma in the mid-90s. She says the woman known as Roe found out about the 1973 Supreme Court decision in a Dallas newspaper. By that time, she had already given birth to her third child, a daughter, and gave her up for adoption. Norma McCorvey never had an abortion, but her court case legalized abortions across the country. We forgive you in Jesus' yeah. name. Yes. You are forgiven. In 1995, Norma was baptized a Christian and made the switch from abortion advocate to pro-life fighter. We are here to proclaim that Jane Roe is dead and Norma McCarvey lives in Jesus' name. In 1998, she was confirmed into the Catholic faith, telling the Associated Press that year, I don't believe in abortion even in an extreme situation. If the woman is impregnated by a rapist, it's still a child. You're not to act as your own God. In 2005, the Supreme Court rejected McCorvey's challenge to the Roe versus Wade ruling, but Morana says Norma would hope the pro-life movement can one day reverse the decision. Just the way she was taken advantage of, she feels like the abortion industry continues to exploit women, and she would like to see the, the stop the killing of the children and stop the exploitation of women, I think. Norma McCorvey formed her own group, Roe No More Ministry, in 1997. She traveled across the country speaking out against abortions. McCorvey died on Saturday of heart failure. She was in an assisted living center outside of Houston. McCorvey was 69 years old.
That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to Blazing History, blazing through history one week at a time. What do you think? Let me know at facebook.com slash blazing shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N shows. On Twitter at blazing shows. Or email me blazingshows at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts or on my website blazingshows.com. To quote the late Franklin D. Roosevelt, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Take care of yourself and we'll talk again next week. On Blazing History, I'm Blaze Bryant.